Well, at the elementary school that I attended growing up, there was one event every year that effectively separated the mental giants from the mental dwarfs. Uh, There was one event that was a rallying point to determine who the best and the brightest were and who the has-beens were. And that event, of course, is what? The science fair. And every year, every year in elementary school, I prepared my science fair project. And every year, I lost. And I, you know, I don't know why I got beat. You know, I look at the other projects that existed in the room. There was the, the, the guy that came up with the theory of relativity with his project over here. And uh, there was the other guy who, who created a robot that built a working automobile, and he was back in that corner. Meanwhile, and my projects were always like Scotch versus Resolve. Which carpet cleaner works best? Uh, that was really one of my projects one year. I thought it was a fine piece of work. Another of my projects that I did was uh, I created a video game system with a friend. Now, neither of us knew anything about electronics, so the best we could do was to take a cardboard box and to tape pictures to the front of it of what the game might look like, and then we recorded on a tape recorder the sound effects for that game, and we put the tape recorder in the box, and that was our video game system. Uh, Amazingly, those projects didn't win. Um, but, but, you know, maybe not so amazingly or not so su- surprisingly, especially if you have gone through this exercise in your family in recent days, uh, when, when I would lose, and invariably I lost every year, when I would lose that contest, there would begin to be some conclusions that would be made about the state of everyone else's project. And that conclusion was always the same. Their parents must have designed this for them. Uh, there was a Ph.D. behind that someplace. Right? They did not come up with that stuff on their own. That was always the conclusion I would come with. I would observe the room and come to that conclusion. You know, something has happened as I've gotten a little older is I, I've realized that I actually had some pretty smart friends, uh, especially when it comes to science. I, I One of my friends uh, that was in those contests uh, back in the day went on to Princeton and then to MIT, and he's a Ph.D., professor of something that I can't understand, and, and uh, that, that's, that's where he ended up. I have another friend that won $125,000 on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, so obviously he's a genius, and, and both of those guys, along with many others, really began to prove my theory wrong. Maybe it wasn't uh, that their parents did their project for them. Maybe they just were better at science than I was. Um, And though I had right observations, I had good data, I was drawing the wrong conclusion. And you know, I I say that today because I think that there is a very real possibility in the Christian lives for us to gather observations about Christ, for us to take in information about the Savior, for us to, to gather observational data about God, but then to draw the wrong conclusions. I believe that because that is something that I have done in my life. I've observed things about God and drawn some wrong conclusions. But, But I also believe that because on the pages of the New Testament, we find examples where people saw Jesus' life and ministry. They observed that, and then they came to the very wrong, wrong conclusion. 
about what that meant. And so what I want us to do today is I want us to look at one of those examples. I want us to look at a passage of Scripture from the New Testament in the book of John, uh, chapter 4, verse 43 through chapter 5, verse 15. Uh, And in that section of Scripture, I I think what we're going to see is we're going to see Jesus performing a couple of miracles in very public ways that lots of people observe. And as we see these miracles that Christ works out that people observe, hopefully we'll get some instruction about how we uh, can and should respond to the observations of Christ that we gather. So if you've got a Bible, open up to John chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 43. We're going to see three things from this passage this morning. Uh, beginning John 4, beginning in verse 43, this is what it says. It says, After the two days, he, being Jesus, left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they also had been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. I'm going to stop right there. Uh, Right at the beginning of this passage, the beginning of this section of Scripture that we're going to look at today, we see that Jesus was going to a place where people had observed a lot of things about him. See, Jesus was going back to the land of Galilee. Uh, Verse 44 lets us know that Galilee was Jesus' home turf. It was his home country. It was the place where he had grown up. So those who lived in that area had had a lot of opportunity, some 30 years, to observe things about the person of Christ. They knew who his parents were. They knew how he interacted with them. They knew how he interacted with others. They knew a lot about him. Uh, the people in, in John 4, 43 and following were people who had seen a lot of things about Christ. They'd observed many things about him. Uh, verse 46 lets us know that they were in the place called Cana. And Cana was a location where just two chapters earlier in the book of John... Jesus had turned water into wine. So there were those who had grown up with Christ, but there were also those who had seen Christ do some pretty amazing things. At a wedding that had run out of wine, Jesus took some water and he blessed it and it became good wine. No doubt that would have been a newsworthy story. That would have been something of Christ's reputation as someone who could do some amazing things that that news had probably traveled throughout Galilee. They'd grown up with him. They knew of his reputation. They knew what he had done in Cana of Galilee. Uh, They also had some knowledge of what he had done in Jerusalem just a few days prior. Uh, It says in verse 45 that the Galileans welcomed him, and they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem during the Passover feast. You see, during the time of the Passover, Jews would travel from all over Israel to the capital city to participate in the worship practices and services and sacrifices there. And while Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Passover, he had 
disrupted the activity in the temple because people were making a profit and a mockery out of the things of God there. And they had witnessed that. They knew of his reputation. They, they might have called him a maverick, somebody who was stepping out, doing things a little differently. They also would have known, uh, no doubt, his reputation as a healer. Uh, Matthew chapter 4 lets us know that during the early days of Christ's ministry, he traveled around and he taught people and he was healing those who were sick, who were brought to him. And the people of Galilee would have known about those kinds of things. See, in John chapter 4, the people that are going to interact with Christ, the people who are going to see the miracles that he's about to, uh, to perform, those people had had an opportunity to observe a lot of things about Christ. And you know what? The reality is that you and I today have had the opportunity to observe a lot of things about Christ, haven't we? You know, just as there were people in Galilee who grew up with Christ in, in, in a different but similar way, uh, many of you here have grown up with a knowledge of Christ as well. Uh, you grew up in the church. You grew up in a youth group. You grew up hearing all of the, the great stories about the life of Christ. You, you, you've heard about how he took a few loaves and a few uh, fish and, and blessed them into a, a meal to feed thousands. Uh, you've heard about how he stilled the storm on the sea. Uh, you, you've heard about how he went walking on top of the water to be with his disciples as they were out there. Uh, you, you've heard about these things. You know of these stories. Many of you have grown up observing the person of Christ through these stories. Uh, maybe some others of you, though, didn't grow up with Christ. Uh, but no doubt you've been able to observe some things about him as well. Maybe you're here at Wildwood today for the first time. Or maybe you're relatively new here and you're kind of checking things out. But at least you've been able to observe that Jesus is revered as a holy man or a teacher or a prophet. A moral example, the leader of a great religion, whatever it is. There's some observations that you have had about Christ. There's something that you know about him. For others of you, uh, we can say that we have observed the work of Christ in the lives of those we know. Uh, maybe it is that you have a friend that talks about their relationship with Christ in a very real way, and, and you know uh, that, that they attribute their relationship with Christ as a thing that has helped them through a, a difficult time in their lives. You've been able to observe that. You see Christ as someone who provides comfort and care to those who follow him. That's an observation that we can have about Christ. Others have embraced all of who Christ is by yourselves. You've come to a spot where you have trusted in Christ and his death on the cross for our sins so that our sins might be forgiven and so that we might have a relationship with God. And you have personal testimony to offer. There's things that you have observed God do in your lives. But whatever it is, I believe that every person here today has observed things about Christ. Just as the people in John chapter 4 had observed many things about the person of Christ, I believe we too have observed many things about Christ. But the question is not just what have we observed, but the question is what is the significance of what we have observed and what will we do with that? 
You know, the passage begins to unfold with these two miracles, one at the end of chapter 4, the other at the beginning of chapter 5. And in those two miracles, what we see is that the things that we have observed lead to our actions. The things that we've observed lead to our actions. And clearly, the things that people had observed in John 4 and 5 about Christ led them to act in certain ways. Uh, The first action that we see uh, deals with the first miracle. And in John 4, 46, the latter half of that verse, it says this. It says, There was a certain royal official whose son lay sick in Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and he begged him to come and to heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. See, in this passage, what we have is we have a royal official who lived in the city of Capernaum, some 13 miles from where Jesus was in Galilee. And while Jesus was 13 miles away, this royal official had observed enough about Christ to know that I want to go and and bring him back to my son who is sick. In other words, there's something that this royal official had observed about Christ that led him to believe that whoever Christ was, he provided the only hope or the answer or the healing power that his son so desperately needed. Maybe he knew Christ just as a person of compassion. Maybe he, he knew him as one who had healed others in that area. Maybe he knew him as a religious leader who had some degree of authority and who God might hear his prayer more than others. Whatever it was, this royal official had observed enough about Christ that he wanted to go get him and bring him back to his son. You see, what he had observed about Christ influenced his actions. He took his need to him. Uh, we, we, we see the same thing at the second miracle. The miracle that happens in John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Uh, this was a miracle that didn't take place up in Galilee. This is the miracle that took place down in Jerusalem. It says, Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the, blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Now this situation is a little different. Down in Jerusalem, there was a pool, and around this pool laid people who were in varying degrees of need of healing. And it was superstition of the day that if the water was stirred up in that pool, that the first one in the pool would receive healing. That was a superstition of the day. And and this crippled man, this paralyzed man, the, the plan that he had for his healing was to go down near that water and be the first guy into the water when it was stirred. Now, first of all, he had been this way for 38 years. This was not a very good plan. 
But it was not very good, not only because the water was not providing him healing, but it was not very good because how quickly can a crippled man get to the water? How quickly can a paralyzed man get to the water? Paralyzed people don't win many races. And so he sat there hoping for 38 years. Jesus says, do you want to get well? And Jesus asked the question because his plan was not very good. But the man voices his plan. And really what you have in John chapter 5 is another set of observations that led to actions. Because you see that the paralyzed man in John chapter 5 had also had an opportunity to observe some things about Christ. He hadn't grown up with him, but he had observed that Christ was someone of compassion, probably because Jesus was someone who spoke to him. You can imagine the scores of people that would walk past this scene and never make eye contact with the, the cripple at the water's edge. Not Jesus. Jesus sees the man, he looks at him, and he engages in conversation with him. Because of that observation, this paralyzed man saw Jesus as someone who might be able to offer some help. Also, the paralyzed man observed that Jesus was walking upright on, to, on two feet, thus providing a quicker mode of transportation into the water should they be stirred. And so you have a situation in John 5, just as you had in John 4, where observations of a person about Christ led them to take a certain kind of action towards him. The royal official took the action of traveling the 13 miles to go visit Christ and invite him to come back to the home of his son. The paralyzed man took the action of asking Christ to be with him and to help him the few steps from the water's edge into the water should it be stirred. Their observation led to action. Now what's interesting in this account is that Jesus doesn't do what either man asks. Do you notice that? Jesus doesn't do. We, we see that in, as the passage continues to unfold. Uh, the royal official comes to Jesus in 49 and says, Sir, come down before my child dies. Make the 13 miles, some 20 kilometers, make that trek back with me to my house because I think that is the way that my son can, can get the healing that he needs. Come back with me. Now, I was thinking about that uh, yesterday. Some of you know I'm training for a marathon right now. And uh, because of that, you, you take kind of longer runs on a Saturday. And yesterday, I, I had a 12-mile run yesterday morning. And, and, and that 12-mile that run took me like two hours and ten minutes. Don't do the math. It's a long time. It's very slow. But that, that two hours and ten minutes um, was, uh, was, you know, you have a lot of time to think. That was 12 miles, and that was at a jog. See, this royal official probably... Uh, you know, who knows if he was jogging or walking or whatever. He was at least two hours and ten minutes, I'm convinced, away from his son. He had gone at least two hours and ten minutes down the road to meet with Christ and to ask him to travel at least two hours and ten minutes back with him to the bedside of his child to hopefully offer him the healing that he needed. And, and upon getting this request... Come back with me 
two hours and ten minutes to the bedside of my child. Jesus answers this way in, in verse 50. Jesus replied, you may go, your son will live. Jesus says, you can go, your son will live. What somewhat of a strange answer that's different than what we might have, have hoped he would have said. See, at this point in time, there had never been a miracle that we have recorded in Scripture of Jesus just speaking the word and someone being healed from a distance. All of the miracles at this point that we know of would have been things that would have been very tactile, people that would have been within arm's length of Christ. Physical touch was involved. So when Jesus says, go, your son will be well, the man very well could have understood that as, hey, be warm and be filled, sir. Be encouraged. It'll be okay. Just a nice sentiment. He did not have a frame of reference at that point to understand exactly what Christ was doing. He asked for Jesus to come with him. The answer that he gets back is, go, your son, as well. Interesting that Jesus doesn't answer the way the man had hoped. In chapter 5, we get a, a similar situation. The invalid, the paralytic, is laying at water's edge, and he says in verse 7, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get down, someone else goes down ahead of me. Implication, Jesus, hang out here with me and carry me into the water when it stirs up. Jesus doesn't say, okay, let me get a chair. Let me go get some popcorn. We might be here for a while. He doesn't say that. Instead, what does Jesus say? Jesus says to him something that is an incredibly uh, difficult statement when you think about it. Jesus says, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Think of how impossible that statement must have sounded. This man had not walked for 38 years. Have you ever had uh, a br break a bone or, or tear a muscle or have something that has to be casted? Yeah, we got one right here. It's, it's happened to him, right? Yeah, we, we've, many of us have been in that situation. You know, a few years ago, I, I, I tore my Achilles tendon, and, and I had to have my, my leg in a boot for like a month. In that month-long time, I went from someone that looked like a, they had a normal leg to a cartoon character with this ugly white stick. It, it happened so fast. My muscles atrophied in a month. Uh, when, when everything was repaired and the, the boot came off, I could no more walk across the room without significant limp um, as fly. I just didn't have the physical stuff in my leg anymore to accomplish that. Imagine a man that for 38 years had not been able to walk. The, 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 at, the atrophy that must have been in his body at that point. The lack of coordination, the lack of ability, the lack of courage. And Jesus doesn't say, I'll stay here with you and take you into the water. Jesus says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. That must have sounded like an impossible, impossible statement. See, based on what both of these men had observed about Christ, they took the action of bringing their need to Him. They believed that He could work, but what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't answer either man the way that they had hoped. Both men get a little different answer. And the question is, why did they get their answer that way? Did Jesus not care about them? 
Was he blowing them off? Did he not just want to travel that 13 miles? What was it? What was it? You know, I believe that the reason why Christ answered both men in that way goes back to this little phrase that we see in verse 48 of chapter 4. When Jesus says, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. Jesus was saying, you want me to do it your way. You want me to do it exactly as you have constructed. He says, I've got a different plan. I'm going to direct you in a certain way, and I want to see if you'll take me at my word. You know, when we, in our lives, take the observations that we have about Christ... We want to take action about those observations in particular directions. Uh, We observe that Jesus is the the king of the universe. We observe that he is the one who is able to heal. We observe that he is the one that is able to give comfort. We observe that he is the one who is able to provide direction. We observe that he is the one that is able to provide forgiveness for our sins. We observe all of these things about Christ. And because of those observations, we want to bring to Him our concerns. And we do. We bring to Him, if if you're out of money, you bring the concern that says, Lord, please be the provider to me and give me the things that I need. But you know what usually happens? We don't just come and say, give me the things that I need. In general, we come to Him and we say, Lord, don't just give me the things that I need, give me that. In other words, Lord, I I need provision, therefore give me this job that I've applied for, this specific job that has this certain salary package, that is your provision for me. We add specifics to it. We come before him in the case of, of medical difficulty, and we say, God, provide healing, but don't just provide healing, provide healing through this surgery, or through that doctor. Or through no doctor at all. We, 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 we devise a plan that we think if God is really in this, then he'll do it the way that I think that he will. And we wrap it all up in a package and we bring it before him. Now, I think that there's biblical example for us to pray in specifics. I, I would, I, I'm not saying that it's wrong for us to take specifics before the Lord in prayer. But I do think it's interesting to note in these instances That many times when we provide God the solution that we think He should provide us with to our problems, that He takes it another way. And He takes it another way not because He doesn't love us. He takes it another way because He wants us to trust in Him. Or because He simply just knows better. A situation like this unfolded in my life uh, when I was in seminary and uh, down in Dallas and you know, it's a, a four-year run of a degree program that I was in, and, and I was about two and a half years into that degree program, uh, long enough to be convinced that I was tired of seminary uh, and that I was ready to be involved in real ministry. And, and so about two and a half years in, and I knew I wanted to go into uh, collegiate ministry at that time, uh, I, I found out that there was an opening at a church in Nebraska. Uh, we've come full circle here today. Uh, but... Uh, there was an opening at a church in Nebraska, and, and I was convinced when I saw this that this was God's solution to my problem of uneasiness. 
about finishing seminary. And so, like Luke in The Empire Strikes Back, who only had a short amount of time with Yoda and then left to find the need of the city, the cloud city of Bespin, right? Um, like that situation, I thought that the plan was for me to leave seminary early and to go to this church in Nebraska and to engage in ministry there as a college pastor. And I remember praying along those lines. I remember coming home and talking to Kimberly, and this was my latest, you know, adventure of, you know, this is God's direction for us, and uh, she got patient with me during those years. But that, that was, yeah, I was so convinced that that was the plan, that that was the solution, and I prayed that way. I remember reorganizing my schedule so that I might be able to, to finish in, uh, you know, an MA program instead of a THM, which means nothing to you other than just know that it's two years instead of four years so that I might be able to wrap a bow on this degree thing and get out of there and go and serve at this church in Nebraska. I was convinced that was it, and I was praying along those lines. Uh, but you know what happened was I got passed over for the job. Now, some, you know, several years later now, I look back on that experience, and, and I'm so thankful because God knew what was best. I found out more things about that church. It would have been a bad fit for me. God had plans for us to come back to Norman and to Wildwood, and, you know, I, I bleed crimson and cream, and, and this is a, a place that has been integral in my spiritual life and development over the years, and, and so see God's hand in all of those things. But, but at the moment, I was convinced that the answer was something else. And yet God's answer for me was different. I don't know if you've had experiences like this or not. But as people who have observed the work of Christ in your lives, I'm sure that you have. Where you've drawn observations about Christ, you've brought your need to Him with your plan to fix it, and God's answer has come back slightly different than you had thought. If that's the case, take heart. We're going to see an incredible conclusion to these two, two stories. And incredible reminders that God loves us. See, our observations lead to our actions. But really, the bottom line to all of this has to do with our response when we hear and see and observe the direction that God is taking things. And we see that in these two stories. And these two stories, as they unfold and as the miracles happen and, and God is going to work through Christ to heal the man's son and God is going to work through Christ to heal the paralytic and allow him to walk, in those two situations we're going to see a couple of different kinds of responses that people can have to the direction of, of God. One response is that of the royal official. The other response is that of the Jewish leaders of the day. Uh, the first response is that of the royal official. See, in, in verse 49, the royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, You may go. Your son will live. This next sentence, if you're someone who underlines things in your Bible, think about underlining this next sentence. It's beautiful. Jesus replied, you may go, your son will live. And this is what it says. The man took Jesus at his word. 
The man took Jesus at his word. What an amazing, amazing statement. If you're a parent, can you imagine? You have your hopes in the fact that this man that you're talking to is the only hope for your child to be healed. And you talk to him and you're anticipating, you're hoping, you've seen this happen with other people, you're hoping he'll go back to your house and provide healing to your son. And yet he says, go, your child will be well. You're faced with all kinds of options. He could have argued, he could have, could have, could have tried to take Christ by force. But instead, what does he do? It says he, he took Jesus at his word. And we have another phrase for that in the rest of Scripture. He had faith in what Jesus said. He didn't understand it. He couldn't have possibly known exactly how it was all going to play out. But he decided to take Jesus at his word. And so he departed. He had faith that it was going to be okay. And so the man started the journey home. You can imagine that journey home, that 20-kilometer journey, that 13-mile journey, that two-hour and 10-minute at least journey back home. That would have been a long trip. And as he's on that long trip, he looks down that dusty road, and he sees servants, his servants, coming to meet him. He says, while he was still on the way, his servants met him. Can you imagine what his heart how fast it would have been beating, the things that would have been going through his head. What in the world is that person going to tell me? What are they going to tell me? Was my son dead? Is that why they're running to meet me on the road? But instead, he hears this news. His boy was living. Can you imagine the embrace on that road? Can you imagine the tears and the, and, and the, and the, 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 the celebrating that would have happened on that road as he realized that his son was well. And when he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that this was the, ex was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and all his household believed. What an awesome, awesome picture. What an awesome picture. He took Jesus at his word, and it paid off. Christ did for him what he most wanted, only he did it in his own way. The promise of Christ came true in his life. He took him at his word. That's one kind of response that we could have, the response of the royal official. But there's a second kind of response, and we'll, we'll unpack this a little more, but sometimes it's helpful to see things in contrast. The royal official took Jesus at his word. What about in this other story? In this other story, we're not going to focus on the response of the paralyzed man, but we're going to look at the response of those who looked on and saw what had happened, the Jewish leaders of his day. In verse 8, Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. The man with atrophied legs suddenly was able to walk. The man who had never walked suddenly had coordination and purpose and strength. The man that for 38 years people had watched lay on a mat suddenly was walking around town. It says, now the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man, 
who had been healed. It is a Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Now talk about a stupid response. Upon seeing this man who had laid on a mat for 38 years get up and walk, all they can muster is, are you sure you're supposed to be carrying the mat? Wrong answer. It says, but he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. And they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? And the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. See, one response is to take Jesus at his word, but the other response is that of the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders who observed this incredible miracle that Christ had enacted in their midst. And what does he do when he observes that miracle? They begin analyzing it. They begin breaking it down. They begin tearing it apart. They begin trying to pack it into their little box of religion that they had. That said that a man couldn't carry a mat on the Sabbath, which is a total misrepresentation of God's plan for the Sabbath day. But they missed it. And they missed it because they, they had the right observation, but they drew the wrong conclusions. They made the wrong response. They analyzed and tore apart the work of God instead of taking the Word of God at face value and believing that it was Christ who had done this great thing. See, we have two opportunities for response. One of those responses is to take Christ at His word, to, to, to live in the tradition of the Christian faith, which is just that. It's faith. It's a walk of faith. Romans chapter 1, verse 17, the righteous will live by faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, we are, are made right not by doing, but by believing what we have heard. See, the Christian life is about believing the truth of God. Not just analyzing it and breaking it down and packaging it into a religious system, but by taking Christ at His word in the very real moments of our lives. And that looks different ways for, for many different people. And I, I know that one way in which it looks for a, a family at Wilder right now is for uh, Brent and Michelle Riggs. And many of you know the Riggs. Uh, they have a beautiful daughter named Abby who has leukemia and is in the hospital right now. And this morning, got an email from them, and uh, I wanted to share part of this with you because, to me, this is a great example of living by faith. Uh, this is what it says. It says, Abby is in the hospital. This is written by her father, Brent. Abby's in the hospital doing pretty poorly. Her central nervous system pressure was sky high, giving her a migraine, and they had to bleed spinal fluid from her. There's nothing quite like watching someone stick a six-inch needle into your child's spine and watch the liquid pour out. She has sores head to toe and literally cries and moans even when she is sound asleep. I would never have believed someone could cry while sound asleep if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes. 
And he goes on to describe this situation. Uh, he says, So there we are, myself, Michelle, his wife, Sammy, their other daughter, in the hospital with Abby hitting rock bottom. All the emotions already jacked and whacked from the stress of watching Abby, and for me in no small part because I was working on one hour sleep about a quarter of most other normal nights. And at this moment, as they're dealing with all of this, a code blue happens down the hall with another child in the cancer wing. And a code blue means that this child is, has passed away. And as they watched that family go through that terrible event, and they saw a seeming lack of hope in that situation for them, they said, I've seen many people grieve, and while I don't know that poor family, they certainly seem to be grieving without hope. It is truly a sad thing to face death without the anchor, the hope, and the comforter. At this moment, all, that this, all this was occurring, Abby had just had her spinal tap fluid drain and several types of medication for sedation. We couldn't wake her up. She should have regained alertness an hour previous to that, and we simply could not get her to open her eyes. Normally, this would be an exercise in patience, giving it some time, monitoring her vitals. In the midst of the code blue, all we wanted was to see Abby, Abby's eyes open. So the floor today was full. Every room had a family with a child in various stages of cancer. Each of the parents there today, who for many, the cancer floor at Children's Hospital is their second home, we're all thinking the same thing. Next time, it might be us. If it is, listen to this, if it is, we will grieve with hope because we know who hope is. The Lord gives, the Lord receives back to himself according to his will. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, as I read that response from the rigs today, I just thought, what an incredible, an incredible illustration for all of us and a living example for all of us of what living by faith and taking Christ at his word is. Jesus says that there is hope in death. There is hope in difficulty. There is hope in struggle. And they're saying we're going to believe that even in the midst of this environment that we're in at the hospital. That is a picture of what happens in John 4, and that is what God is calling all of us to do in all of the areas of our life of uncertainty, is to take Him at His word, to believe in Him, to have that kind of faith in the midst of other uncertainty. The, the, the royal official had no idea what was happening back home 13 miles away with his son, but he took Christ at His word, and it paid off. He took the promise of God in that instance, and while we don't have promises to God concerning our physical health in this life, we do have promises uh, from God for many other areas of our life. And we know that He's in control and we know He's in charge. And based on what we've observed of Him, we can go to Him, take our concerns to Him, and believe that He will act. You know, for some of you here today, as believers in Christ, we need to be taking Christ at His word in those areas. For others of you who are here today, though, uh, you, maybe you're checking out uh, Christianity. This is your first time at church. It's your first time here for a while or whatever it might be. And one of the things that this passage reminds me of as well is that, that no doubt, even though this is maybe your first time with us, it may be just checking out Christianity. You've in your life had an opportunity to observe 
things about Christ, to see things about His character, to see an understanding of who He is, to hear things like that cross is a place where Christ died so that we might have forgiveness for our sins. We've observed a lot of these things about Christ. And if if you're here today, then you need to remember the promise of God, which says that His blood is sufficient to cover all of our sins. In other words, you and I can have a right relationship with God, not by just doing good, but by taking Him at His word that Christ's sacrifice was significant to provide for our forgiveness. When we do that, when we take that step and place our faith in Christ, then like the royal official, we are are heading home. And when eventually we go home into eternity, we'll be met with officials on the road who will tell us that all is well, that we are going to be with Christ. Let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you so much for today and for the time to, to worship together, to look at your word together, to be challenged together with this great picture. Father, we pray that we would be people who would take you at your word, and we pray that we would be people who would have the kind of faith that Brent and Michelle are exhibiting right now, the kind of faith of the royal official who take you at your word in the midst of all kinds of other things that are going on. And Father, that as we do that, that we would experience the joy of seeing your promises fulfilled in our lives, even as those promises were fulfilled in the lives of these dear people in John 4 and 5. Father, I thank you so much for the time that you've given us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.